welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. here at Bookfest Windsor with Mark Bory, a historian, journalist, and lawyer. His latest book, Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit Redesson, was a national bestseller. He's also the author of The Fog War, Censorship of Canada's Media in World War II, Kill the Messengers, Stephen Harper's Assault on Your Right to Know, and The Killing Game, Martyrdom, Murder, and the Lure of Isis. Ooh, that's a title. Nasty. <laughs> lots of lots of lots of killing in my book. So, so running. I think now we're finally having people escape from 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 being killed. So this is nice. Uh, well, excellent. So, what was what, what drew you to this story? What was the inspiration for this particular book? I this you know this this project is like fifteen years old, and I had looked him up for something. I'd done a PhD in history when I was in my forties. And for some reason, I looked him up, and I thought, well, like, we always hear that he was French and that he defected to the English when they started the Hudson Bay Company. Like, that's what everybody knows about the guy. And as I read through whatever it was, probably the encyclopedia entry, um, I came across all these places where he'd been. And so I see he's with the Mohawk. He's he's in New France. He's in New Netherlands. He's in New York City when it's 2,000 people. He spends several months there. He's in Holland. Uh, in France, uh, he's in England during the Great Plague and the Great Fire, and um, on this uh, expedition to the Caribbean that's totally wiped out when they, when a whole fleet sails into coral reefs. And I thought, like this person saw so many cool things, and you can tell the story of this whole world through this man's eyes. And um, and I wrote it on an outline, and I collected everything I could, and I, you know, basically salted it away. Because nobody seemed to know what to do with the story. I, I offered it around to publishers. They said, nobody reads Canadian biography. Nobody reads Canadian history. Well, that's not true. We sold an awful lot of these books. Um, and I kept, and everybody saw him the way they'd been taught. And I said, no, no, no. Well, let's look at him the way people, people, human beings really are. And my at very advanced age and my own experience dealing with <clears throat> all kinds of people at one point, I interviewed almost every serial killer in the country. And, you know, I, I worked on Parliament Hill for 25 years, with, knew all the politicians, the ministers, the prime ministers. And actually, there's not an awful lot of difference between a politician and a serial killer, but we'll go to that some other time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I said, and I thought, well, let's let's talk about him as a person instead of these, these images that we have of the historical people. Because when we think of history, our mind almost goes into comic book mode. And we think of the of the of the paintings, and we think of of these people not being like us, and not having you know, desires and needs and ambitions, and um, you know we think of them as always, pretty much always being somewhat honest or whatever, having having a kind of morality that that doesn't ex- exist. And um, and with Radisson, I thought, well, no, no, I know that that these people that he's with in England, like when he meets Pre- Prince Rupert. Or, Prince Rupert was this prince. Well, prince Rupert was a pirate. Prince Rupert spent 10 years in exile during the English Civil War, mostly working as a pirate, and his brother Maurice was wiped, was washed off a pirate ship and drowned 
and um, was a totally ruthless, vicious human being. Um, he was so ruthless that it, as a 23-year-old general in the English Civil War, the parliamentary soldiers were trying to shoot his dogs on the battlefields of the of the Civil War because they thought that that he was a witch and that these were his familiars. Like, uh, oh my witches have familiars. Like, this is how how badass Rupert was, and 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 this was a time when that was very very tough. Uh, it was a time of world war um, over religion. It was really at the beginning of capitalism, and um, you didn't do the things that Rupert did or the things that Radisson did unless you just had no fear. And I thought, that's pretty cool, too. And um, I wanted to talk about a world that was very similar to ours, but also very different. And then when it got, like, as I got into actually writing the book, and so this is many years later, um, Dan Wells and Janice Warbney, who edited the book, basically say, you want to write this book? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll write this book. I'd you know, been, um, been wanting to anyway. And uh, I started researching the indigenous people and, and I'd done that anyway as a law student. I'd, I'd written my, my major paper in law school on indigenous property rights. Nobody does property law in law school. I, but I love property law. And, um, and, I, and I had written this academic paper that was basically a rebuttal of what Conrad Black had said about indigenous people not being First Nations. What is a First Nation? And I, and I said, okay, First Nations have laws. First Nations have foreign policies. First Nations have um, uh, a respect for property and protection of property. And, um, and I talked about land rights and personal property and intellectual property. You know, the, the, a canoe route that you discovered was yours. Um, and that's intellectual property. So I was, and I thought, well, this is a great way to, to rebut that in sort of the popular press. Explain to people that um, that the that there was not the naivety and the sort of and I, I guess for lack of a better word, um, they they were sophisticated people with a whole set of their own um, sort of plans and desires and uh, strategies and things, trying to cope in this weird world that was happening around them, um, and sometimes succeeding and sometimes not. And Radisson is not a leader. He's not coming in there and changing things. He's he's our eyes into all that. Wow. What a fascinating journey to get to this story. So would you characterize it as sort of a hero story or a cautionary tale? Or I mean, does it have any kind of a... Flavor like that, or it's just you're trying to it's be not, as authentic it, as possible. The story Radisson itself has no moral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He is like that friend of yours that you think, you know, I'm not really sure I should be friends with this person, but I really want to see where the story goes with him. <laughs> uh, you know, the the friend has been through like six you know spouses, and um, and you know that like they might just run under the rocks, or they're going to become like prime minister or president or something. Um, it's that kind of person, and, and so like the kind of person that you would love to have around, but you would never like leave your kids with. Um, <laughs> He's so, almost so, 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 so in that way, like there's no great moral to his life, um, except it's an, you know it's an exercise in what ambition looks like. But where where the sort of message is is about. I'm saying in the book, um, let's take a look at what we think of as explorers, that basically most of these explorers were passengers of 
people who are already doing things who lived here. And let's take a look at um, where we see ourselves coming from and what the world was like back in the time when this contact, really the most powerful part of early contact between First Nations people and Europeans is happening. So they're trying to deal with the plagues. They're trying to deal with the new weapons. Uh, there's some groups that are so powerful that they can just blast away everybody else. And the survivors have to cope. And Radisson sees all of this stuff. So, so we get to see this world that's not the world that Hollywood talks about, indigenous people. And, and then we see a Europe that's very different from what we think of. You know, for people like me of European ancestry, I thought of Europe as, as more peaceful and and people just come over here because they, you know, they want a better life and the whole sort of American dream stuff. And you realize that what's going on in Europe is just sending all kinds of refugees into the world. Just like what's going on in North America is sending indigenous refugees flying out from the southern Great Lakes to the north and stuff. Um, and and not, it's not an apology. It's not, uh, it's not a lesson of, of guilt, though there's a certain amount of guilt there. It's just what happened. You know, I think a historian has to just, in a lot of ways, tell people straight up, like, this is what happened. And I see it this way, but you may see it another way. Um, a lot of things just happen by accident. You know, you, you, you turn left when you should have turned right, and you walked into something. And this, this is what happens to Radisson from the very first pages of the book. He should have gone back to the town he was staying in when he was 14, but he, he gets greedy hunting ducks. And if he hadn't got greedy hunting ducks, all the rest of what happened in his whole life would never have happened. And, it, you know, I met my wife folding when I was folding laundry in on a dining room table because she knew this guy who was her friend from, uh, from B.C. And uh, she was going to university 100 miles away. And her mother had come and her mother had left a car. And on that weekend, she had the car and she went to see her friend. And her friend came to my place. And she met me folding laundry. And, you know, there are so many zigs and zags in that story where one I, I could have been out. Um, I could have been, my friend could have taken her for, out for dinner. Um, her mother might not have come with a car or might not have wanted to give her the car. Like there's a million things. In, in, and that's like our each of our lives worked that way. And then everybody around us is having the same sort of life. Right. And, and, and I, that's the way I, that's the way I write history. And I'd say, well, there's nothing preordained. There's nothing that I don't believe in, you know, dialectical materialism. I don't believe that everything is about money. Um, sometimes people just go for a walk just to go for a walk. And, uh, and that's the, the story of his life is a million things that, you know, sometimes it seems bad. You know, he gets caught by pirates bad he gets dumped in spain not so good not a good place for a frenchman that he's got no money but it takes him so long to get to england that he misses a big plague outbreak that's good you know and and, and then there's a big fire in little that's bad and they're hanging frenchmen literally all over the place any frenchman they can get because english have always been rather xenophobic just like you know we're in brexit today well um but he's a friend of the king so he's safe and like it's on and on where like this light, this switch goes off and this switch goes on and it's, you know, and, and that all adds up to a life, right? You know, the, 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 the time that 
it snows and the roads closed where you're supposed to go to something and then when you find out that something bad happened there anyway or somebody that you really didn't want to see didn't show up and you're like relieved and this is his life it's it's the life of the next person I'm writing about um, and very few of our strategies worked out <laughs> that is so true <laughs> if you think about what you thought your life would be and hopefully you'll say well yeah it's not what I thought it would be but it still was really cool I mean, I hope for that for everybody. Um, I had no idea my life would be what my life is. I thought when I was a, a teenager, well, most of us you know, back then or a little kid, I was going to be a fireman or whatever. Um, I thought I would be a history professor. And I, that didn't happen because I went to university and I didn't have any friends. And so I thought I'd go right for the college paper and fell in with a bunch of reprobates. And spent 35 years in journalism after that. And then I got a PhD because I thought, well, you know, I've always wanted one. And and I met a 100-year-old man who was the... I was writing a newspaper article about he, how he was still a newspaper columnist for a French newspaper in Quebec. And he said, I was the last press censor. What? We had press censors? He says, yeah, I was the I was the guy. I put everything in boxes and... And this is in the 1990s. He said, you know, 50 years is up. He said, I never thought I would live that long. And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, there's all kinds of good stuff in there. You know, it's all in the archives. I said, I packed it myself. There's all kinds of great stories. So then I said, wow. I thought, I could, that would be my PhD. And then one of my best friends knew the professor who had done the first World War censorship system. So like six weeks later, I offered a full scholarship, TA ship, um, basically a free ride through with this like PhD handed to me by this hundred year old man. So, so it sounds life. like you feel some connection with Radisson. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I think, I think everybody should in, in some ways. I mean, I'm not a cannibal um, and I don't expect I ever will be, but you know, Tory times are hard times. And when there's an election coming, um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I, I, I think everybody should feel like anybody who's had its, any kind of life that's anywhere interesting or, you know, I think everybody's life is interesting, um, should, should think about him and, and, and how the, all those zigs and zags work to, to make a life and how, like, sometimes, you know, the switch is on and you, you sort of get ahead and then the switch is off. In his case, he picks the wrong side politically. You know, other people, they have a divorce or, you know, whatever. Like, it's just life and and. We all like to pry into other people's lives. My life isn't interesting enough to write a, a memoir. All the dysfunctions of my life have been pretty much covered by other writers. But, you know, um, I think it's one of the reasons why everybody likes, you know, or many people like memoir writers. One of the big sort of stars of this thing is a memoir writer. Um, it's because we love to peer into other people's lives and see where, when the switch went on and when the switch went off and, you know, and, and, we're not always we're not always looking for the positive either, if you know what I mean. Like if the person spirals down and they don't spiral down enough, that's you know kind of disappointing you know before they claw their way back up, right? Or if the if they're persecuted, well, you know it's best to be really persecuted, <laughs> uh, not just like you know I was like I was the fat kid who didn't get picked in gym that much or whatever, which I wasn't by the way. Um, I was the skinny kid, but I didn't get picked in gym. But you know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, everybody loves a good story. And this is, and I, and 
and I I liked writing a good story. I I I, I was a newspaper person. I didn't like to write boring stories. I'd do it sometimes, and I didn't think Radisson was boring. And I thought, as I did the book, when's this guy's life going to get boring? You know, like when's he going to kind of get old, or when's he going to stop? And as I went through the whole thing, he doesn't stop. And I was really glad. Cause I thought, well, because some people have really interesting lives when they're younger, then they just don't, they, they, whatever. Or, you know, they have kind of boring lives when they're younger, then things start to happen. You know, external things, like maybe there's a war or something. Uh, maybe they have an exciting life like my in-laws, who were in Europe during the war, and then they don't want to have an exciting life anymore. They've seen enough excitement for one life. And they have really kind of conventional lives after that, though they can't help but have the odd thing come up. Um, but not with him. He it, it starts when he's a kid, uh, from the sort of mist of his childhood, and it, right up until he dies, um, he's always kind of going. And and then his kids have this weird stuff like happened to them too. Like as much as I could find out about his children, because one of them sentenced to hang, and another one becomes a, is a murdered prostitute, and yeah, like it just does until they're all wiped out. Like we. As far as I know, there are no living Radisson descendants in Europe, but there are a lot in the Upper Great Lakes, if you catch my drift. <laughs> so, okay. There actually, there's a, actually, there's quite a good book on the three fires, and I'm going to put my historian's hat on and get my tongue out of my cheek, where, they, where the author talks about the start of the Seven Years' War, which is the war where Canada was surrendered from the French to the English. And a guy named Longlad is accused by this writer, quite convincingly, who's a, this is a piece of scholarship, not just some crank, of starting the Seven Years' War, because he's up in the Upper Lakes, and he's a, a leader of, of sort of the mixed blood people, and he attacks uh, what we would say an American post in southern Michigan. And this spirals into violence that spreads to the East Coast and stuff. And so he basically fires the first shot of the Seven Years' War, and he's a descendant of Pierre Radisson. He could trace his family, this mixed blood family, back through Pierre Radisson. So, and there's many, many other people um, who ha who are descended through through indigenous people and mixed race people and, and people who become French Canadian just because they're sort of indigenous. And I'm not going to go walk into very thin ice, but who's indigenous that is is not really part of their identity anymore, um, and they are. Like the Radisson descendants are here, like in 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 Windsor, in Penetanguishene, um, because what happened was that most of the people who were mixed race, um, who lived around Mackinac, Mackinac, um, followed the Brits after the War of eighteen twelve, and some of them came down here, and some of them went to Penetanguishene and formed this, this mixed race community, which is mostly sort of self-identified as French, and that's that's so. So there were probably Radisson descendants in the crowd today. And if we were in Quebec, there would all be, certainly be Grossilier descendants because he just left, he left a big family and Quebec, you know, had this tremendous birth rate where you have, um, you know, 20 kids, 15 kids, and then generation after generation after generation. So that there's, there were 5,000 people who came off the boats from France in the entire time of colonization of New France. Quite a few of those people went back. So of the remainder of the 5,000, there are about 8 million descendants. So you can see that everybody's... So I'm, I'm sure I'm some sort of half-assed relation to Grisillier and possibly to Radisson. Um, 
but there are people who can who can look at a family tree and go right to Grisillier. And mm -hmm. I've, I've talked to them. The deputy mayor of Penetanguishing is one of them. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so what was different about the way you approached this project from some of your other historical books? Um, well, the, 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 the book on press censorship in the Second World War was very episodic, so I looked at different aspects of press censorship. So I looked at how they censored um, the naval war and the submarine attacks in the St. Lawrence River, and I looked at... Uh, how they censored the the Japanese balloon bombs that came off the Pacific into the Pacific Northwest in the States and, and into Canada. Um, so each one of those chapters was basically a standalone kind of thing. Um, and other books I'd written, like it were, I'd written a book, actually two books that were collections of Great Lakes shipwreck stories. So each one of those could stand alone. I, I'm, I wrote those books with the idea that they, you could read them at a cottage. And you could sit down for like 20 minutes and read a chapter. And, and if you wanted to like go for a swim or something, you just finish up the chapter and put the book down. But Radisson, it was the first um, biography that I had written of one person going from like their whole life. And uh, I had written about ISIS propaganda and, and, and in a sort of academic way. Um, I had written about Stephen Harper. That was definitely not a biography. Um, the information control stuff and the tightening of control of sort of this is a very that was a very political Ottawa book of of centralization centralization of power in the prime minister's office which I said no prime minister will ever let go of which of course they didn't uh, much to the chagrin of pre I'm talking a couple of days before the election and I don't think it's going to go off for the liberals I may be wrong but I think that there was a lot that could have been learned by Justin Trudeau and his team about how to do things right and they didn't learn it and if they get punished for that to the point where they lose um, that's I won't be that happy if they realize what they did and fix it I will be extremely happy um, I, I'm not thrilled by the way our government is run says the guy whose wife works for the federal government but um, but in all seriousness it's um, it's very hard to get information from the government. It's very hard for the press to do its work, and the press itself is in such a mess. Um, the press is barely surviving in Ottawa now. It's so tainted. It's it's it has made so many mistakes in its own. Um, and if I was to write a follow-up book, I would talk about the press's self-immolation, like the CBC suing the Conservatives during an election campaign. To me, it's probably the most stupid political move since the Second World War. Um, you, we, we have uh, press that, um, you know, they're, they're getting bailed out by the same government they're covering. That's a big problem. Uh, that would, if that ever happened in the States, people would go bananas. And yet here it's like, well, you know, they aren't doing very well. Well, now they're not, uh, for sure. And, uh, and so, yeah, that book, that book was sort of a cautionary tale that unfortunately came true. Um, but it was, you know, Stephen Harper lost, and yet a lot of the things that are problematic about Ottawa are still problematic. So, getting back to Bushrunner, when I was looking at, was I going to write another book? Um, and when they offered me this, I was like, I can say a lot about what I want to say about how things are, especially with Indigenous people, which I'd never written about. Um, and I can also just get away from this rotten political media sphere 
And so I wrote this book mostly in a little law office in a small town in the Ottawa Valley. And I, and it was, I think the escapism that I felt as a writer writing the book comes through in the book. And so it, to me, it was a little vacation and yet it was fun. And there's an awful lot of tongue in cheek stuff in the book. It's not, you know, and then Radisson, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there, I mean, I got to tell the story. I got to move it along. And there are several people on the, uh, you know, Amazon site I would like to, like, throttle because, oh, I, I can't understand this. It's not the Radisson Grossoli I read about. Well, no, it's not. Uh, you go read that again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I got to tell the story and have a lot of fun with it. And and I think I did a lot of good for some people, um, you know, not necessarily Radisson. Uh, and I think I, think I might, uh, this is going to be very... Um, I have changed the way I write history, and I think I might change the way some other people write history. There are not a lot of people writing history for people in this country to read. And academics aren't writing for, uh, for people to read. They're writing for other academics. There are not commercial historians anymore that are writing sort of commercial stuff like, you know, Pierre Burton or Peter Newman. The only one I can think of is Charlotte Gray, um, who writes for people to read. And I want to be one of those people who writes for people to read because uh, I don't want that to be lost. I don't want uh, I don't want people to get their history from Wikipedia uh, and for academics to think that that the people who pay them, which is us, not just the kids who pay tuition, but we all pay for academia, that that they can have their hobbies and their their sort of little closed world. Um, I don't want that to be the only way history is written. And I want history to be fair. Um, and I try to be fair. And I'm sure that people will you know, will say that I, I lean this way or that way. But in my mind, I'm fair until I'm convinced otherwise. I think I really, I really don't go through that book and say, geez, you know, I, I was too hard on the indigenous people or I was too easy... And it was somebody who was stalking me online who wrote anywhere they could that I, like, that this is a, a politically correct book, and you can see the air quotes in the air as you listen to this, um, and that I lied and said that the indigenous people were well off and and that they had, like, you know, fabulous things and that nobody starved. And, and so I know the person never got past page 60 because one of the key parts of the of the early part of the book is a horrible famine where Radisson damn near starves to death. So, like, I know this person didn't read very far. And I'm thinking, like, this is, uh, this is really mean and horrible, you know? And uh, that's, so, what do you do? It's, it sounds like you bumped up against somebody's belief system there or whatever. Yeah, something something they didn't want to let go of. Well, yeah, they, a lot of people don't want to let go of it, and they, they use history to, you know, or they use their they have these these prejudices that they don't want to let go of and uh, or they um i don't know i, I yeah <laughs> sorry i i i'm at a loss for words because i don't understand why people aren't willing to learn through their lives because i this is one of the things in my own life is like i really am really thirsty to learn all the time and i don't ever consider myself educated and you know so I'll you know get sort of 
immodest, but I, you know, I have a PhD and I have a law degree and all I ever learned from those two things is I don't know dick about anything. <laughs> I don't. I don't know any law hardly. I know, I know, you know, some history. I know more history than most people. So I know more history than maybe 90% of people, but I don't know any history either. But what I did learn was where to find stuff. So the first person I made friends with when I went to law school was the librarian. And, you know, we, um, and I feed that all the time. Like, and, and so when someone says, I'm not going to go past my prejudices, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you tell me about these people. And I'm not only am I not going to let you tell me, I'm going to try and hex you so that nobody else reads this either. And then, of course, my censorship ears come up from the years of the media and the years of writing about censorship and saying, like, why are you trying to stifle me? Um, and, uh, you know, and I don't try to stifle people. There's lots of people who are really extreme on all sides of the of the issue of, of Indigenous history and Indigenous rights and what 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 is owed by non-Indigenous people and what, you know, what Indigenous people are in terms of are they nations, are they groups of people, are they just a... In a, you know, a minority or whatever, right? And I, I know people who are indigenous scholars who believe things that I don't think I would ever believe. Uh, and I think a lot of that's based on anger. And I also see people who are completely the other side who, you know, who write horrible things about how indigenous people should just assimilate because, you know, they're a conquered culture. And I don't agree with those either. But I am very loath to censor. I have one hand down for the for the evil, like they're they should assimilate, and one hand down for the scholars who say that basically they had a perfect society, and it, you know European people just came and ruined this utopia. And I don't believe that the right hand should be censored, and I don't believe the left hand should be censored. That that where we are, where where we really work as a society in North American society why the great American experiment works so well is that in the discussion itself people grow and they learn and sometimes they lean one way and sometimes they lean the other but Harry Truman you know there's that wonderful book by Merle Miller uh, where he interviews Harry Truman um and it's like a back and forth. And Harry Truman, I think, really had it nailed where he said, sometimes the American people swing one way, sometimes the American people swing the other, but they always come back to a solid place in the middle. And I think that's the same in, in you know, Canada too. I think we're not really that much different from Americans in terms of that kind of culture. So let people talk about it. Let me, t- you know, explain it my way. Somebody else wants to write a Radisson book saying that, you know, he was a great guy and, uh, you know, he was the best thing that ever happened to whatever. Uh, that the Hudson Bay fur trade was this great thing for. Go for it. Let put it out. You know, and see if hey, people buy it. Like, well, and I use that word two ways, I suppose. <laughs> you know, buy it like off a shelf. Like they, they you know, the Radisson book has sold very well. Um, so people, obviously, it wasn't like text, um, and see if uh, people believe because. Otherwise, like we just, you know, we'll have Soviet scholarship. We'll have, you know, we'll have someone tell us what to believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think 
part of what you were doing in the book is maybe kind of humanizing him again. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I talked. I did a session here, and I talked about how when we think of the image of the explorer uh, from our grade school textbooks and high school textbooks, and from like mural. I, I like. I live in Ottawa. And there's murals of Indigenous people, and there was a statue of Champlain on the on a hill with Indigenous people around him. And there's a statue on Parliament Hill from the War of eighteen twelve, and in every one of them, the Indigenous people are always bent over. They're always a head lower than everybody else. And there's this, you know, if you were to look in a, a book, if you look up Radisson, Google Radisson, you do it right now, uh, you'll see pictures of a guy standing in a canoe while a bunch of Native people paddle, and he's the explorer, right? And um, and he's like the, the, a superior being. Well, of course, I like totally reject that right off the bat. And and what I did, I talked about this in the in the, in the session, is I make Radisson sit down in the canoe. And he has to paddle, and he's he's freight just like you, know, and and he's not running this thing, and he never did. Like I think in that book, it really shows that he's always along for somebody else's ride, and uh, and that was the way that was the way the continent was opened up in a lot of ways, until there was sort of a critical mass of 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 European people who began to like change the environment, you know, like plow the prairies and. And, and you know deforest the east coast and build cities and build railways and things but up until that point when anybody uh, air quote again explored anything they really just basically were there through the sufferance of the indigenous people and the cool thing about radisson the thing that makes him so different from everybody in the 1600s that i that i've whose work i read was that he really liked the indigenous people and he really liked this part of the world like you know he didn't actually get to Windsor unfortunately but he got to Toledo and he liked that uh, that's pretty close that's pretty close uh, he uh, he liked Upper Michigan he 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 never said oh this is an ugly country this is man you know bitching about like how the, he didn't complain and he liked the people um, and he when he, he was adopted by the Mohawk when he was 14 and when he um, he he left, he took off because for reasons that are in the book, and, and they were not that bad his reasons. But he runs into Mohawk again, like five years later, and he's asking about his family, and he's giving the Mohawk stuff to take back to the adopted people who he loved so much. And in the only he's the only people he ever talked about loving, in the and it's all the stuff he ever wrote. And he's married four times. Um, and there's, I think he loved his first wife quite a bit because he actually does stuff to try to be with her. Like they're separated by events, and her her father is this wealthy ex-pirate, and uh, Radisson's basically run out of friends in England, and he has to go to France, and he wants her to come with him, and her father won't let her. She's got this really good allowance, and she, you know, she's afraid of being poor in France, and uh, Radisson goes back, and he pawns things to try and stay with her and everything until he runs out of money and then he goes on this expedition that gets wiped out in the Caribbean. Um, so I think I think he really did care about her. But the, the rest of them, we don't even know like much about them. Uh, and children, like Radisson Grosillier, I mean, talk about, you know, they're poster boys for deadbeat dads. Like Grosillier, he comes home, every time he goes, comes home to, he, his wife lives in Trois-Rivières, Quebec. 
that's the other side of Montreal from. And every time Grosselier comes home, he gets his wife pregnant and he leaves. So he's got all these kids. And he's never, he doesn't, there's no sign that he supports them. She's running a little store in this trading post that's almost always under siege by, like, hostile indigenous people. And yeah, he comes back. She have another kid. He leaves. And then he's gone for, like, eight years at one point. And then he comes back and he just moves in. He's, he's home now. And, okay. you know, and, and that, that's the one whose parenting skills we know about. With Radisson, there's nothing about kids. He's gone all the time. Uh, there's, uh, except like we know that they came to, the ones that survived came to a bad end in horrible like ways or like, they, but we don't even know how many kids he had or, or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, these guys were, these guys were really textbook deadbeat dads at a time when women, um, and there's not, you know, the one of the, I think the big flaw of the book is there's very little about women in the book, but there's very little on the record. And I didn't want to sort of make stuff up, but, the, but it's clear, and I, and I do talk about it in the book, that there are always women carrying the ball for these guys, um, whether indigenous women doing like physical work and running the fur trade or saving Radisson's life. Uh, umpteen times he's, his life is saved by indigenous women uh, and then there's these these wives and stuff um, who are never treated very well through the book and then he has finally one last wife who outlives him sort of keeps him as, as an old man and he's at that point he's kind of kind of t- leaning towards broke not quite broke he's got a servant and um, but all he cares about is getting this money that he stole from somebody else, and he can never get it back. <laughs> oh, wow, what a story. So, now you mentioned another book that you're working on now? Yeah, I'm writing a book about a person who's a, a, probably a sociopathic, but he's a Canadian of the middle of the 20th century, who, had he had his way, would have been dictator of Canada, and who's literally been written out of the historical records. Uh, so if you were to think of, like, the um, Alexander Hamilton plot where she burns the papers, the, the, his wife. This happened to my guy. His wife burned all his papers and then married the guy's best friend who became Premier of Ontario. And, uh, and so it's a story of a kid, literally a kid, who works himself like at 15, he quits school. He walks the back roads selling newspapers. He gets a job on a, the Globe, Toronto, in like 1927, gets fired for smoking in the office in 1929, goes to a brokerage firm like three or four months before the crash, and within a couple of years at, so he would have been uh, 24, like 26, he's a millionaire, and he hooks up with these guys who are these prospectors who are kind of like Radisson, they're larger than life, very, very weird guys. Uh, one guy is uh, this English guy who loves horses, and he's out prospecting, and he's climbing up a hill, and he, and he pulls this chunk of moss down. There's an eight-foot-wide vein of gold with, like, lumps of gold in it. And this is the guy who backs up my guy, who basically... My guy wants to run the country. He wants to use media power. He buys the Globe, buys the Mail and Empire, puts them together into the Globe and Mail. Then he starts doing radio stuff, and he tries to get rid of party politics in Canada during the Depression when fascism, fascism is on the move. So this is a man using wealth, using media power, trying to develop political power to get rid of what he calls partisanism, which is really democracy, 
uh, but he's bipolar. So one day he's going to take over the country, and the next day he's hiding under a desk crying. And he has to adapt his life that way. Um, an incredibly successful, gorgeous, physically gorgeous man. Women loved him. He had friends like all over Hollywood, you know, royalty in, in Europe and stuff. And at the age of 47, he killed himself. And um, there's a lot more to the story than that. But when he killed himself, they took his picture off the wall. The, he owned the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Telegram, which were two morning papers. Off came his picture, off came his name. Uh, history was written to credit other people founding the original papers. So there's no book about him. His wife burned his, his own papers. Uh, so I have the recordings of the speeches he made. Uh, where he tried to whip up a partisan, uh, a populist partisan system, uh, sort of leader cult around himself, uh, and I rebuilt all his papers, and I've been doing that for almost ten years. So what I did was I went into every archive where I could find people that I thought he would have written to or wrote. Back. So I so I would get all the letters that he wrote to them, and all the letters that they wrote back, because people would keep carbons back then a lot of time. So I've been able to to reconstruct his his personal papers and I found he has a daughter who's still alive and I talked to her and she's really pissed off at her mother for basically she and I agree that this man should be like should have a book and that her mother destroyed his the chance for him to be in the historical record wow that sounds like another fascinating yeah, tale so how close a, are you with that um, I have 65,000 words written I have a contract with Bibli Oasis so we'll do that book with them, and uh, so it's gonna it's gonna happen, and it's uh, it's a really neat story because you know not just this this guy who's almost Trump like, but but much much more sophisticated and a lot smarter, um, and a self made man as opposed to Trump, and uh, and then in the background are all these characters like these these gold, one gold prospector gets murdered and it was never solved, the other guy. He's he's the richest man in Canada. He's living up in Barrie in a little house that, by you know, uh, and 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 all he cares about is horses. You know, he's like horse mad, and and his his house is like full of junk, including all his tax records and stuff. And so, the guy I'm writing about goes up and he cleans it all up, organizes everything, and he starts racing horses, and uh, and so the money's always there to do whatever. And whatever is to basically get as much political power as possible. At one point, there was an agreement in Ontario to get rid of all the political parties at Queen's Park. And he brokered that agreement. And then the conservative leader, so in 1937, the conservative leader went to Ottawa and talked to the national conservative leader who basically held him up by his ankles and shook some brains into his head and said, you cannot do this. You cannot turn Ontario into a fascist state. And... Uh, and so he had scope back and said, no, we, we're going to have an election instead. And they, they had an election. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it on that note because I want some story to, to surprise back. us. And, yes, when, we, when you come back. back. All right. Terrific. Thank you very, very much for coming and for talking with us. I had such us. a good time. And I wish I lived like a lot closer to Windsor. This is such a great town. And, and the festival, people were were great. Um you have such a vibrant literary culture around here. All kinds of local people who are doing... Like, I live in a city of a million people. 
Um, and you live in a city of what? 200,000. 200,000 people. You, Windsor, are doing 10 times what is happening in Ottawa, um, except for like political writing. But, but, um, but in terms of scholarly writing, poetry, um, fiction writing, publishing, we have one sort of one publisher in, in Ottawa, and they basically publish. It's really more of a self-publishing thing. You have Biblioglasis, which is a real solid publisher, and then all these other publishers that, that I'm not as familiar with. So I'm not denigrating them. I just don't know them as well, but they're here. And it makes me want to go back to Ottawa and start a publishing company. <laughs> we have a writer's festival and stuff, but we we don't have this this incredible community that you have here. And I don't know why. Um, and it, I, you know, people say, well, I'm like, Detroit and all that. But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it at all. Um, Detroit doesn't hurt, but I don't think that's the genesis of I it. Think yeah. it's, I think it's people like Marty Gervais. Uh, you just have this constellation of, of the right people. Mm-hmm. So you've got Marty Gervais. Uh, you've got Dan Wells, who between the two of them are like probably two of the most dynamic publishers in this country, uh, willing to put their own money and take their own risks uh, on, on projects like Bushrunner, which was turned down by three publishing houses where it would have been... When they look at it now, I'm sure they wish they had taken it uh, because they didn't see what someone like Dan Wells can see. And, uh, you know, I just wish the whole country was like that. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah, it but, would. Well, thank you so much for well, saying such lovely things about us. We're, we're glad to have you. Come back no soon. No problem. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.